Welcome to the Self-Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at Self-Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you are encouraged by this week's message. Good morning, friends. How are you doing today? Great to see you. If you are here and joining us for the First Mile Initiative, we're going out into the community later today. We're delighted you're joining us in that. And if you haven't signed up, if you would like to get involved in some projects, we'll just go and cause Dan some problems by trying to sign up last minute, and he'll be fine with it. Uh, don't worry. It's great to see all those spring images on the backdrop. Uh, how many of you guys are ready for it not to snow again? <laughs> like, we can... Now, I love the snow, so I'm like, it can snow in the mountains all year, I'm fine, we can keep going. But down here, I want to plant some stuff and, you know, just get involved in spring. We are in the middle of a series that we called Searched. We took some of the most Googled questions about faith, about walking in the way of Jesus, and said, how can we answer them? So first week, we looked at the problem of evil. If God is good, why do bad things happen to good people? Last week, we wrestled with this this kind of scary question. Why does God hate me? Which is the second most Googled question about about life in in the way of Jesus. And this week, this one's one's a fun one. We're going to wrestle with this question. I won't show it to you yet, actually. I'll, uh, I'll hold on for a second. The point of these questions is you may not be wrestling with them, but it seems like loads of people are. You may be okay with all of these things, and yet your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends and family, they are wrestling with them. And so what we want to do is two things. If you're wrestling with them, we want to help clear some roadblocks to faith. We want to clear some of the pathways so you can jump into life with Jesus. And if you're not wrestling with them, well, we want to equip you so you can have great conversations with your neighbors, your coworkers, your families, your enemies, your salesmen, your dot, 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 anyone that you meet. We had the sales, same salesman come to our door five times this week. So really, it was an opportunity, right, to to just share some stuff. Let's start here. What is the most ridiculous law that you have encountered? The most ridiculous law, like think about somewhere that you've been, and you find out that something is a law, and you're like, really? That, That doesn't seem like it should be in the rules. Maybe it's a speed limit that seems way too low for how wide this road is and how long it stretches, and you're like, 55 Maybe 155, but 55 just seems too low. Maybe you have tensions with just different ways that the world operates. But I think most of us at some time have encountered something and said, really, that? This is York Minster in the city of York in England. It has these beautiful walls that run all around the city. And York has a very particular, ridiculous law. This is a law in the city of York. Except on Sundays, it is lawful to kill a Scotsman in York if he is carrying a bow and arrow. So, and the Lord does go into some more details. You have to use a bow and arrow as well, reportedly. But if he comes inside of the walls, it goes back to these days where the the English and the Scots, they didn't get on so well. Scotland has famously never been invaded, which kind of makes sense. When the thistles grow knee high and the men all wear something that looks like skirts, that's not a nation of people that you want to mess with. I'm really upsetting some Scottish heritage people here. But, This law has been in effect for years, except, of course, it doesn't make sense. So someone inquired to the local council, could you tell us an instance where this has actually happened? And this was their response. After an extensive search of our records, I can confirm that there are no records of any Scotsman being legally shot with a bow and arrow in the last 10 years. Still leaves a lot of open territory. There is, however, a vague recollection 
of an alleged occurrence several centuries ago which involved a group of men from the Nottingham area dressed in green who were enjoying a stag, that is, bachelor, night in York. Regardless of any ancient legislation in place that has not been repealed, we can confirm that it is illegal to shoot a Welsh or Scottish or any other person, regardless of the day, location, or the choice of weaponry. They're just making sure that they just got everything covered there. It's obviously a ridiculous law, right? And there's other laws that you encounter that you just, I'm just not so sure. I found this old photo of back when Laura and I were just young things with our first child, uh, sat there on a train, oh, Kids, there's so much we would have to tell you now. You're not going to sleep for the next 10 years. You're going to be exhausted for forever. But I took a little close-up of the little sign in case you can't see it, and it says, please keep feet off seats. And there we are, rebellious, really, really relaxing after a day in London. And if you don't want people to put your feet on the seats, well, don't put the seats that close to the other seats. I mean, it's just asking for trouble. We encounter these laws, and whether we know it or not, we ask several questions. We ask things like, does this person have an authority or the authority to make a decision on what I should do? Maybe we ask, is the law stupid? Do I think it should be there? And we probably ask something like, do I like it? Do I want to do that? We may not realize we do it, but somewhere internally we have this whole process. Maybe we ask, am I going to get caught or not? Maybe it's just a matter of just, you know, can I get away with it? But there's these questions that go on. And what we find is that one of the most Googled questions about life with God is, why does God care what I do with my body? Why does God care what I do with my body? And this was linked to a whole bunch of other questions. Questions about who you spend the night with. Questions about should I be allowed to get a tattoo. Questions about all sorts of things. It was broad and it was wide. But you can see it wrestling with that question, right? Yes, the question is, does God, why does God get to decide what I do with my body? But there's all these sub-questions of, well, does he have the authority to do that? Do I like the fact that he thinks he can do that? This is the wrestling that we see. And, and watch how this question changes its nuance depending on where you put the emphasis. Why does God care what I do? Why does this God who's big and huge, if he's really who he says he is, why is he interested in the details of my small little life? Why does he want to have a say in that? Why, why is he interested at all? Doesn't he have bigger things to worry about? If he spent less time worrying about what I did with my body, maybe he could fix that problem of evil thing that we talked about in week one. How about this little twist? Why does God care what I do with, with my body? There's the, 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 the ownership thing, right? Well, it's mine. I'm an independent being. I can do what I want. He doesn't have the authority to tell me what I can do. It's kind of a little similar, but, but a little nuance to it. And then finally, this one. Why does God care what I do with my body? And there the influence is on the body. Yes, there's all sorts of other things that I can imagine God having a say in. But that very personal thing, that, that doesn't seem like his realm. Why that thing? Why the body? Just leave it alone. Let me do what I want to do. Let me feel, do what feels good. Just stay out of it, God. We can have some interaction. We can have some sense of like the spiritual thing, but, but in terms of the body, let's just let it be what it is. Why does God care whether we have tattoos? Why does God care what we watch on TV late at night? Why does God care what we play with on the computers when nobody else is around? All those different things that you could put into the realm of body. Why does God care how many people I spend the night with? All of those different things. The question is, well, why? Why should he get to say? 
should be separate, should be my own thing. Why does God care if I choose to put something like this on my body? English professors should care. The government, the education system should care. There's a whole bunch of people that should care. Morally, I think we're all a little outraged, but does God really care whether I choose to put marks on my skin? And because this subject could get so broad, we're going to start off super narrow. We're going to start specifically with tattoos. Does the God of the universe really care whether you get a tattoo? And, and that's the, the one I picked because I think it's fairly unemotional, right? There's probably a bunch of you that have a fair few tattoos in the room. I have never got one because I'm afraid of doing something like that without thinking about it, and it's with me for life. Uh, and then there's a bunch of you that probably say, no, I would never get a tattoo, and I'm not sure whether people should, and, and yet we're, we're all fairly unemotional, I would suspect about it. Once we get into some of the other things that this question maybe touches on, man, it gets deep really quick, and we'll get to some of those, but we're going to start here with tattoos. Why does the God of the universe care? Why is he interested? And where does he even say that? Is that even one of the rules, if you're sure what the rules are? Leviticus 19, verse 28. Leviticus is a text that is probably around 3,000 years old. It outlines all of the laws that were put in place to help people live the life that the God of Israel wanted them to live. And Leviticus 19, 28, sure enough, says, Do not cut your bodies for the dead or put tattoo marks on yourself. I am the Lord. When we were in Michigan, one of the pastors in Toronto, which was fairly close by, had Leviticus 19, 28 tattooed down the side of his arm. And I couldn't decide if it was delightfully ironic or just stupid, and I'm still a little stuck. Does that just settle it? Is it just as simple as don't do it? There it is. It's black and white. It's in the text. We can all go home. We can get some nap before we go on the first mile initiative. Is it just a done deal? Well, hopefully, if you've been following Jesus for a while, you've learned that there's always a context thing that raises some questions. It maybe isn't as simple as it seems on the surface. So... Why don't we dig a little closer into this? This is Leviticus 19, verse 28. Let's step back a little bit and let's, let's look at the little passage that this appears in. Do not eat any meat with the blood still in it. No more red steak for you guys with the blood dripping out. Do not practice divination or seek omens. Do not cut the hair at the sides of your head or clip off the edges of your beard. My haircut is the only male haircut sanctioned in the building. But it doesn't allow anything for people whose family genes do not enable them to grow a proper beard. Do not cut your bodies for the dead or put tattoo marks on yourself. I am the Lord. Do not degrade your daughter by making her a prostitute or the land will turn to prostitution and be filled with wickedness. Observe my Sabbaths and have reverence for my sanctuary. I am the Lord. What an interesting group of laws, of rules. It's hard to figure out, right? Like, why are some of them there? Why are they mixed in with all these different ones? Does God really care as much about whether I trim the sides of my, of my hair as he does about rule number five? Do those belong in the same category? And what about this thing about Sabbaths? Where does that fit in with whether we should eat meat that has blood in it? Certainly, practicing divination may seem like it might be out, but the meat thing, that just doesn't seem right. These laws seem to fit together poorly. It's kind of hard to make sense of, well, why are they all even there? And, and for us, 
3,000 years later as followers of Jesus. Are we supposed to obey all those? Do those all still apply? Let's give it some more context. This is going back to the start of this passage. We're in chapter 19 still, but we've gone back to verse 1 or 2, and we get to see some of why this has been said. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Now, if you're new to this Jesus thing, if you're still figuring out faith, when you see the word Lord, that may seem a bit of a strange word. That was a personal name that this group of people, the Israelites, had for their God. It was a name that he had given them. And so really what you're seeing is the word God in a different language. The the Lord said to Moses, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy because I am holy. The Lord, I, the Lord, your God, am holy. This nation, Israel, lived in amongst another group of nations. This other group of nations all had particular practices. And God said to them, I want you to be different from them. I want you to stand out. Whenever you see the word holy in the Old Testament, you're seeing this word kodosh, which means holy, set apart, different, belonging in a special context. We probably think of holy as maybe a church, maybe a religious ceremony or something like that. But when they thought of holy specifically, it was about, well, how is it different? How does it stand out? And it seems like God's instruction to this group of people is, I stand out, I am different, I am sacred, special, in a specific context. And I, I want you to do the same. So when you live amongst these other nations, there's things that they do that I specifically want you not to do. I want you to be very clear that you are different to them. Live a different way. In the ancient world... The ancient world was centered around a split between what was sacred and what was common. There was this decided split. They knew very clearly when they were on sacred ground and when they were on everyday ground. So you might say that in terms of these buckets in front of us, I'll take one and say that on one side you have... Now the reason that we tape the second service, not the stream the second service and not the first one now is because I got these all wrong in the first service. It was... Absolute incompetence, so this just gives me a second chance. You've got sacred. And then you might say, there's two options I've got here for you. You might say sacred and not sacred. It's the best description I could get. Other than common. The people of 3,000 years ago, 3,500 years ago, were very clear that there were some things that were sacred And there were some things that were common, and they were very aware of which sphere they were operating in at different times. So when this group of people leaves a land called Egypt, God takes them into the desert, and he says, I want you to build a tent. And in this tent, my presence will dwell. That's where you will experience and encounter me. When they got to the later land, Israel, they built a temple, and God said, my presence will be in the temple. That is sacred then there is everywhere else there is not sacred. There is one day a week, the Sabbath day, that is sacred. It is a special day. It is set apart. It is holy. There are the other days. They are not sacred. There is the tithe of your possessions, the 10% that they would give to the priest. Those are sacred. And then there's the other stuff that is not sacred. But When you were an unholy person, just a normal everyday person that had all of these failings, all of these faults, and you had to move from this realm to this realm, well, how did you do that? How did you have access? How did you make sure that it was going to be okay? How did you make sure this great big holy God didn't just strike you down for not being good enough? 
And so there were these set of rules that enabled people to do that. So roughly you would have the sacred place, a temple or something like that. And a sacred man would help you figure out how to make the transition. So someone doing something like what I'm doing right now would say, I'm going to make sure everything is right for you to move from here to here and to do it safely. And that sacred man would have a sacred text. It would have a list of laws and it would say to you, this is what you do to make sure you operate in the sacred realm when you're used to operating in the common realm. This is how you move from the one to the other. This is how you make sure that you're okay. And this is how you get to have access to this God. And even these laws that they were given were broken down into maybe three categories. So you had ceremonial laws, how you did the religious services, how you came into this space or something like it and operated well. Then you had civil laws that said, well, how do you treat your neighbor? What do you do if someone accidentally kills your donkey? How do you do that in a way that's fair? And then you had these big moral laws behind the scenes, things that people had known really forever. When you are with someone, you don't kill them. When you go away, you make sure they're still breathing, still healthy, still in the condition that you arrive, that they were in when you arrived. These laws enabled them to operate these spaces and to do it healthy. You moved from sacred to the common and common to sacred and the rules made sure it all worked well. The, the rules of the common realm essentially assured that you could come to God in that sacred moment and everything would be fine. In the ancient world, they had a very clear idea of what belonged in each bucket. Six days a week are common. One day a week is special. The land is common. The temple is special, is sacred. They had a definite sense of how all of that operate. And we have some of that still lurking around today. This is a picture of St. Paul's Cathedral in London. Many of you, or I, including I, may walk into it and say, wow, this place feels holy. It feels set apart. Interestingly, it was built in the 16th century. And when they built it, uh, the, descript- the reason they chose this design was because they said it was awful and artificial. It was awful and it was artificial. It just so turns out that 400 years ago, the word awful meant full of God's presence, or And artificial meant that they'd considered all of the designs and it was very artistic. Today, it sounds like an insult. Then it was a huge compliment. But we walk in and we say things like, wow, this This feels like a holy place. How many of you that grew up in church had a special suit of clothes that you wore just for church? How many of you wore shoes that were specifically reserved for church? How many of you were told, don't run in this space, you are in church? There were all these different things, different ways that you had to operate because whether they phrased it like this or not, you were in a sacred space You weren't in a common space, and we would get home, we would rip off our church clothes, we would throw them into a closet somewhere, and then we would get on with everyday life. We had had our moment of access, we had had our moment of spirituality, we had had our moment of sacred, and now we were back doing the everyday stuff. But my question is this, is that how we're supposed to operate? And what did Jesus have to say about the bucket system? What did he have to say about sacred and common? And how did he think you move from one to the other? And did he think that that's what you did at all? What did Jesus say about buckets and about operating this system? So let's jump into John chapter 2. If you have a text, you can open it. We're in verse 13. We're going to read a fairly large chunk of it. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. 
In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. Now, what were they doing? I always thought that they were doing something wrong, and they knew they were doing something wrong. As I got older, I started to read it, and I started to think, I actually think they think that they're doing something right, and everything's okay. They are helping people move from the common to the sacred. In their minds, they are helping people navigate this whole system. You need a sacrifice to make. Here it is. I'm selling it on the doorstep. You get to buy it. You get to go make your sacrifice, and you can do the sacred thing. You can experience God. You don't have the right money. You can change your money here. Then you can buy your sacrifice, and you can experience God. I think they think everything is good. So when Jesus turns up and made a whip out of cords and drove them all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle, he scattered the coins of money changers and overturned their tables and then says this to those who sold doves. He said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. My suspicion is that they actually think, what's his problem? Why? What, what, why is this wrong? The, we're just operating the system. How is it? It's always worked. People need to access God. They need to get into this sacred space. And we're making it happen. And look at their, their response sort of leads into that suggestion. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? We're just following the rules. We're just following the system. There's the buckets of sacred and common. And we're just making sure People can get where they need to go, where the sacred men in the sacred place with the sacred texts and the sacred laws. And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Their response, understandably, is confused. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. They believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. When Jesus says, I'm going to destroy the temple, they assume he means the physical one in front of them. And the question is, it's been here longer than any of us can remember. It's been here for years, and you think you'll destroy it? And he very pointedly says, well, no, I'm talking about something else. And John unpacks that for us, as he always does, in his helpful way. The temple he had spoken of was his body, and after he was raised from the dead, the disciples record what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Let's jump into Matthew for just a second. Different biographer of Jesus' life. John writes a little bit later. Matthew writes a little bit earlier. And this is Matthew describing what happened in the moment Jesus died. Matthew 27, 50. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. Matthew is the only writer that goes into detail on the fact this curtain splits. He seems to think it's significant. And think what is happening here. They have this holy place that they go, where God's presence is. It's right in the center, and a curtain blocks anybody from going in, anyone encountering this God in his most real closest form. When the curtain splits, what does that mean? Well, it means a couple of things, right? One, it maybe means that everybody has access. One, it potentially means that anybody can now go in. There is no longer a block, no longer a thing that says, no, this is not for you. No moving from the, the, the common to the sacred. But maybe on another hand, it also means that God moves out. 
that he no longer operates this particular area, this particular place, that suddenly Jesus is starting to say, well, there isn't sacred space and common space. God is present everywhere. You don't have to go to a specific building to experience him. And by implication, all of those rules that you had to follow to navigate the process, all the things that enabled you to move from common to sacred. I didn't get those the right way around, did I? Yes. Thank goodness. All those things you had to do to navigate from common to sacred, you don't have to do them anymore. You as you are can come and have access, not because anything you have done, but simply because this Jesus has done something. Jesus' death and resurrection broke down the ancient buckets of sacred and common. Every part of existence was included in his redemptive work. There's multiple ways to talk about this death and resurrection of Jesus. It is the sacrifice for sins. It's the payment for the things that you and I have done wrong. It is also the victory over sin and death that we talked about on Easter Sunday. But it is also the changing of the bucket system, the common and sacred thing. According to Jesus, it no longer applies. The temple is ripped and God moves out. You have access. You have access because, as we talked about on Easter, you are transformed. This is our butterfly from the caterpillar that we gave out on Easter Sunday. That moment of transformation is a gift. And that gift says you don't have to worry about how you move from one to the other anymore. He took care of that. The rules aren't necessary anymore. There is no need for people in the marketplace selling doves so that you can move from common to sacred. There is no common and sacred. God's presence moves out and now is everywhere around us. 6560 is not south. This building isn't south. We, the people, are south, and that could be anywhere. There is no sacred space. But here's the problem with all of this. It's good news, but it leaves you with a question. Well, what laws still apply? Think about all of the laws that we read. Think about just the little passage that we read, the sum they feel like they should still be there, right? But there's others that you look at and you're like, well, I don't know how I feel about red meat anymore. Should I still be cooking my steak rare? Should I still be able to get knowledge is power tattooed in bad grammar on my arm? Should I get no regrets or something like that? What, what's the rules now? And yet there's others in the list that you're like, no, but I definitely want to keep that. And think about the big moral law codes that have been there for years, the do not murder. I still think that's a good deal, right? When we leave a place, people should live. We probably shouldn't be stealing other people's stuff. And it would be really nice and simple if there was a list given of which ones still matter and which ones don't. But there isn't. There isn't a list. And yet we know instinctively that there's some rules that you're like, ah, that's got to make sense. So when the question is asked, uh, why does God care what I do with my own body? And that's broadened to multiple searches that say, what about tattoos? What about sex before marriage? What about dot, 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 dot? The question is, well, how do we know anymore? And for years, the early church wrestled with this question. And we're going to look at a couple of churches and see how they dealt with it and hopefully leave with a good application for how we might process it. In a church, in a place called Galatia, in a letter that a guy called Paul wrote to a church that he called it Galatians, they kept everything. This church in this town, in this place called Galatia, they kept all of the rules. They said, we're going to keep doing everything. We're going to keep the Sabbaths. We're going to keep eating the right meat. We're going to keep making sure that we do all the things that the people did before. 
they essentially said, we're going to keep thinking about how we move from common to how we move to sacred. All those rules, they're going to stay. And this is Paul's response to them. You crazy Galatians. Did someone put a spell on you? This is the message version. In case you didn't guess, if you're new to faith, the message version is is a bit more like a paraphrase. And sometimes it's good and sometimes it's great. And in this case, it just nails what it seems like Paul is getting at. Did someone put a spell on you? Have you taken leave of your senses? Something crazy has happened for it's obvious that you no longer have the crucified Jesus in clear focus in your lives. His sacrifice on the cross was certainly set before you clearly enough. Paul feels like Jesus did away with this system. I wanted to do like a Bobby Knight throwing the chair across the basketball court when I got rid of the buckets, but I decided someone would get injured and it would just not go down well. Let me put this question to you. Did, how did your new life begin? Was it by working your heads off to please God? Or was it by responding to God's message to you? Are you going to continue this craziness? For only crazy people would think they could complete by their own efforts what was begun by God. If you weren't smart enough or strong enough to begin it, how do you suppose you could perfect it? In Corinth, in Galatia, they kept everything. All of the rules stayed in place. And in a town called Corinth, they did the opposite. As they figured out what rules still apply, they kept nothing. They said anything's up for grabs now. We can just do what we want. Let's celebrate. When Paul, this writer in the first century, writes to them, he responds to this question or this statement that they've made to him, it seems, in their own letters, in their own engagement. I have the right to do anything. When the question was posed to the, the people of Corinth, what, why does God care what I do with my own body? Their response was essentially, he doesn't care. He doesn't care. We can do what we want now. God has done something inside us that's spiritual. And now we can do whatever we like. Let's party. Let's celebrate. There's a spiritual core to us somewhere. Now let's jump into whatever physical pleasures we like. And this is Paul's response to them. Just because something is technically legal doesn't mean that it's spiritually appropriate. If I went around doing whatever I thought I could get away with, I'd be a slave to my whims. You know the old saying, first you eat to live and then you live to eat. Well, it may be true that the body is only a temporary thing, but that's no excuse for stuffing your body with food or indulging it with sex. Since the master honors you with a body, honor him with your body. God honored the master's body by raising it from the grave. He'll treat yours with the same resurrection power. Until that time, remember that your bodies are created with the same dignity as the master's body. You wouldn't take the master's body off to a whorehouse, would you? I should hope not. There's more to sex than mere skin on skin. Sex is as much spiritual mystery as physical fact. As written in scripture, the two became one. Since we want to become spiritually one with a master, we must not pursue the kind of sex that avoids commitment and intimacy, leaving us more lonely than ever, the kind of sex that can never become one. When the question was posed, well, why does God care what I do with my body? The, the response was, he doesn't care. When the question was posed about tattoos, it was, he doesn't care. When the question was posed about who you spent the night with, the response in Corinth was, he doesn't care. When the question was, should I stay up late, late at night messing around with stuff on the computer? He doesn't care. That was how the people of Corinth chose to live. In their minds, the buckets were slightly different. It wasn't as much about common and sacred as it was about this.
There was the physical realm, the stuff that you could see, matter, the body, all of those different things, clothing, food, all of that good stuff, cars, not in Corinth, obviously, not even bicycles at that point, horses and carriages for them. And then there was spiritual. There was physical, and then there was spiritual. Physical, and then there was spiritual. And what you did in the physical realm had nothing to do with what was going on in the spiritual realm. You were free to do whatever you liked. And Paul's response is, that is the most absurd thing that I have ever heard. Or didn't you realize that your body is a sacred place, the place of the Holy Spirit? Don't you see that you can't live however you please, squandering what God paid such a high price for? The physical part of you is not some piece of property belonging to the spiritual part of you. God owns the whole work. So let people see God in and through your body. In a place called Galatia, they return to the old buckets of sacred and common. In a place called Corinth, they created new buckets of physical and spiritual, but still the old separation. Still, God is interested in what happens at a particular time, a particular place, or in a particular sphere. Not God is interested in and cares about everything. And yet it seems Paul's response to all of this is something like this. You are an integrated being. Living in the way of Jesus is a holistic choice. God made and loves all of you. He phrases it something like this right at the end. You were quite an expensive purchase. So glorify God with your body. When we ask the question, why does God care what I do with my body? The answer is, well, he made it and he believes he knows what is good for it. And you can't detach body from spirit. You can't say that what happens in the physical doesn't affect what happens in the spiritual. It's all related. You can't say what happens in the common space is okay and what happens in the sacred space is different. They're all related. You can't say I'm going to do what I like six days a week and the seventh day of the week is special. It just doesn't work that way. We are integrated beings and it all is affected by everything else. What we eat affects us in the way that we operate in the spirit. You can't just keep destroying your body by eating foods that are bad without and continue to stay healthy. All of these things, it seems, connect. And it leaves us with maybe a little bit of a pickle because there's no simple rule anymore. This is Tom Wright's sort of explanation of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Instead of just laying down a simple take-it-or-leave-it rule, Paul wants Christians to think things through for themselves. In other words, discover how to live the truly human life which brings glory to the God in whose image you are made and whose own unique image, his son Jesus, died to rescue you from all that will stop you being the person he longs for you to be. It seems that God's longing for us is to have relationship with all of us. We can't just say there's a spiritual thing going on and the physical doesn't matter. So somewhere in around 1960, we started using a word that had been around for a while in a new way. The word is spirituality. You may have heard it. Maybe you've even used it yourself. You may have said, I'm not religious. I'm just spiritual. Now, on one hand, there's nothing wrong with that. You're trying to get to the heart of a problem. I think it has some uses because what we're trying to say is this. There's some ways that religion operates that I don't think are healthy. And so I'm trying to do this spiritual thing that is separate from the religious world. And and given what we just looked at, that makes a little bit of sense. 
given that we looked at the idea that religion is about a sacred man helping us move from common to sacred, it kind of makes sense to say that, well, I'm going to kind of figure this out by myself. And if God is everywhere, God is present, and you can come into relationship with Jesus by yourself and have access to this God who loves you, then, then that kind of makes sense too. But the downside is this. One of the implications of this constant use of the word spirituality is, well, there's a thing going on inside, but it doesn't really affect anything that happens on the outside. There's a thing going on in my heart. God is doing something somewhere internally in there, but, but it doesn't really affect how I operate in the physical sphere. Same problem is in Corinth. What we see in Corinth is the early ideas of something called Gnosticism. It was the separation of the physical and the spiritual. And maybe we see the same today. And maybe we don't just see it in the world around us. Maybe we see it in the church. And I can give you an example that is somewhat humorous, but also very sad as well. There's a story of a man who comes up to his pastor, and he's very sort of agitated, and he says to the man, look, I've, got, I've heard some terrible news, and I need to tell you about this. There's a lady who comes to the church, and she's run out of money, and she's been kicked out of her apartment, and the landlord is merciless. He just won't sort of give her any grace at all, and, and we don't know what to do about this. I don't, you know, what, what can we do? What can the church fix? And the pastor says, well, I want you not to panic. It's okay, we have a fund for this, we have benevolence, we're going to pay for a month of rent for her, and then we're going to make sure that she uh, can find a place if she needs a new place, and we're going to go to our food pantry, and we're going to get her a whole bunch of food, and we're going we're gonna to give that to her to make sure that she's okay. And the man says, oh, I'm so glad to be part of a church that can do that kind of thing. And he goes away, and as he's leaving, the pastor says to him, just, could I just ask you, I, I hadn't heard about this situation, could you, could you tell me how you heard about it? And the man turns around and looks at him and says, oh, I'm the landlord. I'm the landlord. I'm the landlord. Now, that story gives us an insight into how religion or spirituality can operate at its worst. It is a man who has the potential or the possibility to do something about a situation, but says, well, no, 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 that's not my problem. I have this spiritual life that goes on in the church realm. Maybe I lead a prayer meeting every now and again. Maybe I stand up and pray in front of other people. Maybe I dress really nice. Maybe I get up earlier and arrive with a smile on my face. But my spiritual life is separate from what happens everywhere else. We have a tendency, if we're not careful, to operate this bucket system still, even though Jesus says the bucket system is done with. Some of us are still wrestling with what it is to move from common to sacred. We are still trying to access this Jesus thing out of our own strength, out of our own energy. We are the church in Galatia constantly trying to work our way to impress God. And Paul would say to us, it's not how it works. You don't need to do that anymore. You are gifted, given access. This is a Jesus thing that he has done for you. It is as startling as the transformation from a caterpillar to a butterfly. And some of us, are still struggling with the current system. We have found a convenient way to split the physical from the spiritual. We found a way to go back to a system where we can identify six days a week where we can do whatever we like. We found a way to operate certain realms that say, well, that doesn't matter. That's not a church thing. And, and I'd love to just show you some of this really quickly. How do you identify which belongs in which bucket? If I write work on there where does it go is it physical is it spiritual is it common is it sacred 
And our tendency most of the time is to say, well, I have this work life that fits over here. It's common. It's physical. Tell me I got it the right way around this time. It's common. It's physical. It's separate. How about something like money? Where does it go? It's mine, right? I get to do with it what I want. I have it. It's mine. So it goes over here in my physical, in my common bucket. God doesn't need to speak into that. Sex, relationships, who I spend the night with. Very easy to put that over here when we have a decided split between spiritual and physical. We get to take so much of our lives and say, I'm going to separate that thing. What happens here is my business. And what happens here is God's business. And what happens is the realm that God gets to operate in in our lives gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And so when we ask questions like, why does God care what I do with my body? Even if we believe he does, the answer is, but he shouldn't. Because this doesn't belong to him. Maybe another way that you thought about buckets, maybe another way that I've thought about buckets could be labeled like this. And the thing gets smaller and smaller and the thing gets bigger and bigger and we separate the two. And yet the word, it seems, that Paul would have for us is that, well, no, it all is integrated. I tried to write a goofy sentence and it might stick with you, so I'm going to show it with you even though I didn't really like it afterwards. Matter, the thing that makes up life, does matter, but it isn't all that matters. So focus on everything that matters, which is everything. There is this combining of the spiritual and the physical It seems like Jesus says, I I am interested in all of it. And life in my way, life in the way of Jesus involves the surrender of some kind of internal spiritual thing and also the physical life that we operate in. It is all up for grabs. It is all important. It is all included. In what new ways might God be asking you to respond today? How have you and I chosen to bucket what is sacred and what is common? Are we constantly finding ourselves having to move from one realm to the other. There is this joke that works here, but it doesn't work here. And so I have to figure out where I am. Is there a way that we have to dress over here and a way that we get to dress here? There's all of these different ways where the bucket system still comes up and it grabs at us. In what ways have you chosen to bucket what is physical and what is spiritual? Is there a way that you get to operate with a computer late at night that fits in this realm, but you would never have it in this realm? Are there relationships that you're living in that would operate well in this realm, but you would never bring into this realm? And that's not a judgment of you. That's not a criticism. That's a recognition that we all wrestle with these kind of things. And and it seems like God is not happy with saying, take that physical thing, and I'll just take this spiritual thing. It seems like he wants all of it. You are an integrated being. I am an integrated being. I am spirit and physical. And I can't operate in one one way and one in the other. It all matters. I'm going to invite Aaron up onto stage. And we're going to move from the text into a time at the table. So those of you unfamiliar, this is sometimes called Eucharist, sometimes called the Lord's Supper, the table, mass, all these different words. 
It is this process of remembering Jesus who came and gave his life so that we could have access. That that ripping of the temple curtain, yes, it invites us into access to this God, but it also means that God is present in every area, in every realm. And yet what is incredible about this, especially today, is this communion thing operates both in the spiritual and the physical. It operates both in the common and the sacred. It breaks down the walls. It breaks down the buckets that we so often build. Jesus took real bread and real wine, physical stuff. And he said, this is my body and my blood shed for you. It is physical and it is spiritual. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me whenever you gather together. It is both common and everyday. And it is also sacred. It is a remembrance of the pivotal central moment of all human history. The death and resurrection of the Son of God for you and for I. When we come to this table... We allow the physical and the spiritual divide to break down. We allow the common and the sacred divide to break down. And we say, God, I come in this moment simply by grace, simply by your favor and your love for me. I come surrendering spirit and physical. I come surrendering the internal religious life that I try and separate, try and divide. And I come surrendering the physical life that I try and hold to myself. Come surrendering my time, which I think of as my own, and the day that I give to you on Sunday. I come bringing the money that I would hold as my own and the the money that I give to your kingdom. I come bringing the relationships I would hold as my own, the ones that I would own in your kingdom. All of those different things that we seek to split off, we come and we bring all of them. We bring all of them in remembrance of the Son of God who gave his life for us, who gave it for all of us. I take you back to Paul's words, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20. You were an incredibly expensive purchase. So honor God with your body. I'm going to invite you to bring all of yourself to the table and bring it under the sway of God's good love and care. So Aaron is going to lead us with a song and I'm going to invite you to stand, which you can do now. And as you are ready in the contemplation of your heart, come and take the elements, take them back to your seat and ask yourself, God, how are you asking me to separate or to unite spirituality, spiritual and physical? How are you inviting me to unite sacred and common? How have I operated the bucket system? Have I constantly tried to earn my own access? Have I tried to keep things to myself? If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. You can give online at southfellowship.org slash give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks for listening, South family. Have a great rest of your day.